This is the No Dama Podcast. I'm Brian Hogan, and this evening I'm joined by Aaron Stannard, joining me from Houston, Texas. Thank you very much for taking time out of your evening, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I'm the uh, founder of a company called Petabridge. Uh, we build open source tools for allowing .NET developers to build concurrent and distributed systems. Uh, the uh, project that we're probably uh, best known for is Aka.net. I'm one of the founders of that project too, but I'm working, I've been working on Aka.net longer than Petabridge. I think Aka.net predates Petabridge by a year and change or so. So it's been, been around for about six years. And Aka.net's a, a distributed actor framework. Uh, so it gets used by companies for building things like uh, IoT systems, logistic systems, uh, a lot of financial systems. So we've got customers who build things like real-time odds predictions and sports betting markets in Europe, or they might do things like high-frequency trading. Uh, but usually most of the financial stuff is kind of a little bit more, a little bit more uh, pedestrian, like uh, you know, trying to detect fraudulent transactions or doing you know, payments and ACH, that sort of stuff. And so that's, that's kind of been my, my more recent work. Uh, prior to that, I started a, a large-scale uh, marketing automation company out in Los Angeles. Uh, and that was uh, kind of a little venture-backed company called Marked Up. And uh, before that, I used to work for Microsoft as a developer evangelist. And that was – I think I left Microsoft and started Marked Up in about 2012. So – we're it's kind not, of the short version. We're not going to talk a lot about ACA tonight, but can you explain what an actor model is briefly? Sure. Uh, an actor model is actually a really old concept in computing. It dates back to the early 1970s. Uh, the actor model white paper was published in 1973, I believe, which makes it only about two years younger than the relational database white paper. Um, so the actor model has been around for a long time, and it was this idea for doing concurrent computing before we had uh, preemptive operating systems and and the concept of threading and that sort of stuff, the idea was you'd have these big living room sized computers with thousands of low powered CPUs, and you'd break your application up into these little actors, and each actor would own one core. And the way you'd build applications is uh, <clears throat> when one core finished its work, it would go ahead and send a message to one or more of the other actors running on other cores. And they could all cooperatively kind of work together by sending messages back and forth. Now, the actor model never needed to get implemented in the 1970s because Moore's law uh, it, it kind of eliminated the need for it. We ended up with uh, computers that had really powerful CPUs. And we only needed one or two of them. That was up until the sort of advent of the Internet uh, when Erlang got invented in the late 1980s. And it was used to build the first sort of digital telephony systems. Uh, Ericsson is the is the you know, ultimate sort of creator of Erlang. That's why it's called that. It was Ericsson language. So Aka.net is an implementation of the Erlang style actor model, but in .NET. It runs on top of the CLR, works in F Sharp and in C Sharp, and it's used by lots of different uh, companies, both big and small. Uh, so we we basically, as a company, uh, Petabridge provides training, support, and consulting. And some uh, like APM tools, application performance monitoring, in case you're not familiar with the acronym, uh, for monitoring how well your Akadana applications are working. And that's been my, my sort of bread and butter for about five years. So uh, we're, we're, Petabridge is a totally self-funded company. So And, and about 99% of our business comes from Akka.net. So uh, that's that's kind of the, uh, the backstory there. Yeah. And we're not going to talk I'm not going to talk much no. about Akka.net technically tonight, but I'll, I'll bring it up from time to time. So, so you in January this year, you wrote a few blog posts about 
open source and .NET and the open source uh, world in general. What prompted you to write those? So uh, there's really two things that prompted me to, to talk about that. Uh, first was there's been this ongoing discussion, not just in the .NET. And when I say the discussion, I kind of mean on Twitter and at tech conferences and also on some mailing lists behind the scenes where lots of maintainers work on open source technologies of varying degrees of popularity have started having this conversation about burnout, which is where open source maintainers get either financially or physically or emotionally or intellectually exhausted uh, trying to support this big base of users and their open source technology. And they decide to just drop their ball and go home or uh, maybe try to hand it, hand the project over to another owner and maybe they'll also try to um, gradually sort of withdraw from the project. And it's it's because basically there's the, this sort of a lack of incentive to keep working on the project after you move out of uh, – it was uh, I think Fat, one of the creators of Twitter Bootstrap coined this phrase. After you you get out of the shiny – you know the, the brand new puppy phase of your open source project where you're not getting retweets and likes and all that sort of stuff anymore and you're doing kind of the thankless grunt work of triaging bugs and managing releases and you know running automated build systems and updating documentation and adding examples and all the stuff that kind of isn't quite as exciting as you know getting on the front page of Hacker News. Uh, that, so that was one thing that was going around on, on Twitter quite a bit, uh, not just in January, but it's been really kind of – there's been this increasing awareness of it really over the past couple of years. And then the, the sort of second element <clears throat> is about .NET and Microsoft specifically where unlike other communities, which are kind of born and bred in this open source environment, like if you look at Node.js or Java or Python, Ruby – those, those are all sort of open source and the bottom-up type ecosystems. In .NET, we have a culture that's been proprietary for the better part of – .NET, I guess, is turning 20 years old uh, next year. I think 2001 was sort of the first 1.0 release of it. And I would wager for about, let's say, let's call it 15 or 16 of those years, .NET was a proprietary Windows-only ecosystem that required developer tools. You had to pay big licenses for. Uh, Microsoft was innately distrustful of open source and essentially discouraged its customers from adopting it. And now that's changed quite recently to where Microsoft is putting up everything on GitHub. Uh, it's trying to use third-party open source and one of the part of my my sort of one of my posts was just dissecting where they're not really doing a, a good job of that, which is in quite a bunch of places at the moment. Um, but and how that really affects the sort of um, we'll call it like the uh, the supplier diversity of the .NET ecosystem in terms of where can good ideas that impact the businesses who build applications using .NET where can those come from if not Redmond and are there things that you know. Redmond slash Microsoft is doing that ultimately hurts the ability for the ecosystem to develop uh, to really support the type of rapid innovation that we've seen in other ecosystems like you know Python and Java and the JVM overall. And uh, that, that's kind of what, what really motivated me to speak out was I've been doing this stuff for about Gosh, uh, my first business, you know, really consumed and had to create a lot of open source just to just to 
essentially build our products because there, I couldn't turn to any Microsoft open source projects or any third party ones that were mature enough to do basic things like building a socket server, for instance. I had to go and make one of those myself. And it was a port from something in the, the Java ecosystem. And um, so I had that experience of being you know, an app developer who was frustrated by the lack of tooling choices in the .NET ecosystem. And then by total accident, I ended up becoming a vendor in that ecosystem. And I've been doing that now for about five years. And I, and I sell you know, services and training for the, to help sort of augment um, my customer's ability to use our open source effectively. So I've kind of had a chance to, to get a front row seat for a lot of the change that's happened in the .NET ecosystem. And I've, all, I've learned quite a bit about running an open source business too. Uh, so really, I was kind of wanted to share some knowledge and some, some thoughts from uh, coming from a place of deep experience there. You also talk about the idea of sustainability uh, within open source, and you've touched on it a little bit, but could you give me maybe, a, a, I suppose, a deeper example of what you mean by that? Sure. So there's, there's two sides of the table when it comes to sustainability. There's the, the, side of the, the side of the table that everyone talks about, because these people talking mostly on, on you know, Twitter and social media, is the, the perspective of the maintainers. These are the people who essentially bear the cost of the development of the open source projects. They're the ones who create it, they're the ones who write the tests, they're the ones who market it and make it popular. Um, and, and it's really kind of their intellectual work that they give away for free uh, to a large extent. Um, and uh, so that's, that's like the, the one side of it. The other side of the sustainability question is the consumers of the open source, the people who actually install these packages and use them typically inside their business's software. Um, now, one thing that has changed quite a bit is the amount of open source software and the amount of open source ecosystems has grown very rapidly over the past 10 years. I think even in an ecosystem as historically conservative as .NET, you could not point to one company that doesn't use a single line of open source somewhere in its application. Whether it's, let's say, using a jQuery or some derivative of it inside your web application. I know I'm dating myself a little bit by, by bringing that up, but jQuery is the, the classic, right? Um, or you know, using something like uh, just a JSON serializer in .NET, Newtonsoft.json, you know, even though it's just a JSON library at the end of the day probably opened up a lot of doors for people to start using open source because Microsoft had to admit like, hey, this library has is so well developed and works so well that we don't really want to reinvent the wheel here. We're going to go ahead and start using that inside our own ASP.NET templates and everything else. So that's really the idea behind sustainability is how do we make this relationship work where the maintainers are able to get what they need and they're able to continue to produce the things the consumers need. It's a little, it's a, it's sort of a feedback loop, if you will, right? And so the problem that we have right now with the majority of open source projects is that there isn't a real feedback loop. What often happens is, is that open source projects get created because they were either a business necessity, that's what, that's what my case was with Aka.net. I actually needed to create a product and Aka.net was just a step towards getting to it. So that's one way open source projects often start. Another way is you take a developer who's really experienced in a specific field and they keep solving the same problems over and over again. And they say, you know, 
there might be a better way of doing this. I'm going to go ahead and come up with something that's fairly uh, generalized, but really good at attacking a specific type of problem I encounter a lot in my business. And I'm going to put it up on GitHub and see if other people start using it. Those are kind of the two different sort of like sort of, I guess, uh, points of origin of a lot of popular open source, one of those two. Now, where problems begin is when you become a victim of your own success in open source. If you put open source packages up there and no one uses them, then you, you don't really have a, a sustainability problem because it's just code you have on a GitHub repository. It's not really an open source product yet that people are consuming. It's just kind of stuff that's out there in the ether somewhere. Where it becomes a problem is if you go through all the trouble of making your open source consumable and people actually start using it. And what happens is, is at first you got, if I, if I had to draw like a little graph here, I'd go ahead and say, you have this um, sort of a peak of excitement where, you know, you're a developer has been working diligently and quietly. You're probably not used to getting a lot of attention, particularly on, you know, our programming or on Hacker News, and then all of a sudden you've got something that attracts other developers to you, attracts their companies who are interested in using it, and it kind of depends, by the way, on the types of problems that you solve. But if you're successful, you start getting all this attention. And then when people start using your software, what do they find? They find bugs. They find features they want. They need examples. They start asking technical questions. They start posting you know, questions on Stack Overflow. And all this stuff kind of uh, starts creating this pressure on you because your reputation's on the line. And you feel like, well, I'm a developer and I care about doing a good job. So you start trying in your spare time to triage these issues and trying to implement those features and answer those Stack Overflow questions and write that documentation all the while. You're not being paid for any of this. Um, so you're kind of uh, creating a second job for yourself in addition to the one that you probably already have, right? And so what happens is after a long enough period of time, particularly when, you know, when people really depend on your open source and let's say there's a bug in your open source package or some weird edge case you could have never possibly anticipated, you get some developer, usually maybe possibly even in like a different country, barking at you telling you that you screwed up and you need to fix this and make it right. And you don't really owe them anything, but they feel like you're the one who screwed up their work because you have this bug in your code and you haven't tried to fix it. You haven't done a release yet. And they're kind of knocking at your door like, uh, like how they would, you know, Microsoft in the event that someone found a, a critical bug with windows, or some software they had paid for. But in this case, they haven't paid for anything. So after a long enough period of exposure to that type of just sort of emotional drain and pressure and effort, you basically lose the motivation to keep going. And that's where burnout sets in and the project becomes unsustainable at that point because the people who do all the production are essentially giving away their work for free. And at a certain point they say, you know what, I don't need to keep doing this. Uh, because And so – the companies who then – and here's where, here's where it becomes real dangerous from an ecosystem point of view. The companies who are consuming that open source run into a problem when the maintainer leaves, which is that if there's not one central place where updates come from or if there isn't another maintainer who's going to step in and take it over, what are you going to do if that piece of infrastructure that that developer created is pretty important for how your system functions? Well, now you need to go ahead and update a company fork of the software 
and maintain it yourself, which means having to go ahead and discover all the bugs and fix them yourself. And then it just creates bite rot everywhere. And it basically creates liability for you in the grand scheme of things. So that breakdown of where the maintainers leave, the sort of central ownership of the project falls apart, and you end up you know, with a bunch of different stakeholders, these consumers who are using the open source software, all basically have to kind of fend for themselves after a certain point in time. And that creates real technical and financial risk in some cases for them. So the question about sustainability is, how do we prevent that from happening? How do we make sure that that breakdown, which is inevitable, by the way, for a big enough open source project with the, with the where the incentives are misaligned, the incentive between consumers and producers aren't aligned, how do we prevent that from happening? So that's that's kind of really the, the subject of the more recent post that I did on sort of sustainable open source projects. And Before we move on to that one, though, um, sure. I want to kind of ask you your thoughts on a few things. So from the perspective of, let's say, the maintainers, what I've often seen is that projects have quite often one maintainer. Mm-hmm. And if that person walks away, the project is dead. And it could be a project that's getting millions of downloads, uh, you know, in a six-week period. The, I'm, I'm saying six weeks because when you look at the NuGet, it gives you the history of the last six weeks. And it could be, you know, millions, five millions, ten million. There also there also seems to be very little benefit to a lot of the, the authors or the, the creators. You know, they... It doesn't necessarily mean that they're more employable. They'll still have to go through interviews. They'll still have to kind of find a job. And the, the, the better the tool is, quite often the simpler it is. So you don't need their support. You know, you've written some documentation. You know, 80% of the time you're using 20% of the, the thing. And you don't need anything. And then, as you say, there's free support out there through Stack Overflow and through the GitHub and through other things. Is there... When you, if you weren't, let's say, trying to start a business out of open source, if you had a, a you come up with a good idea for a, a nice little tool, what is the incentive for a person? You know, what I've seen a few people do is, you know, they, they speak at conferences, but even that's its own huge amount of work. Maybe they write a book, but there's no money in it. There's, no, there's no money in publishing. Yeah. <laughs> um, as I think everyone finds out after they do it, so what's the incentive to work on open source if you're, you know, just doing it for its own sake? Uh, because because it brings you pleasure and because you, it's, it allows you to express an idea that you probably can't express at work. Um, you know, the, the, the reasons for doing open source, there's, I guess, two ways of looking at it. One is you can look at it as an activity that you do for your own pleasure. And it's kind of like a craftsmanship thing. Not all that different from, let's say, having a wood shop in your garage where you're, you're working on building furniture because it's a thing that gives you a chance to express some ideas that you don't get to express at work. And that's that's probably a pretty common one for a lot of developers, especially ones who work in really big companies where their environments and their, their co- are very tightly controlled. Uh, that would be one that'd be one reason. I'd say the other reason that's a little bit more commercial is let's say you know you feel like uh, your job opportunities are limited. Uh, in your little local ecosystem where you are right now. And you think to yourself, you know, what's something I could do to go ahead and put myself on the radar or even better, just demonstrate to prospective employers that I am a competent developer and I know what I'm doing and you can trust me to do the right thing with your work. This actually worked really well for someone I hired at my last company, a really talented sort of .NET front-end developer 
But his real forte was JavaScript. He wrote a really simple open source library uh, that specifically handled credit card validation. It was the thing it did really, really well. And so you, it's tough to come up with an example that's more specific than like a JavaScript library for doing credit card validation, right? Sorry, excuse me, it wasn't credit card validation, it was phone number validation. I got it wrong. And what he did during our, our job interview was he asked me, uh, you know, basically if I was if I was a Chase customer, and I, and I was, Chase Bank. Um, and so I went ahead and I logged into Chase Bank and he showed me, he goes, that is my code. And he went ahead and we did view source on the little phone number validation thing. And yeah, sure enough, it was the library that was linked to his GitHub. You can go ahead and see all that there. And I thought that was really impressive that he built something that was so good that big a big bank like Chase would use it. Um, now, obviously, for us poor backend developers, people like me, we we can't we don't get to do things like that because no one can tell that our software is running on the backend most of the time. Um, but that's an example of something you could do to go ahead and use open source to kind of that would be one motivation for doing open source, other than the trying to get money out of it. Would be it gives you a, a certain degree of visibility, and it gives you a clear accomplishment you could point to. And one of the things that's real frustrating for a lot of developers going through the, the hiring process is that a lot of their work is locked up in someone else's proprietary code base. And you can't point to the years of effort you put into all this work, all this stuff. So having something that you own, that you control, that you can point to in a public GitHub repository is a good way to kind of break down some doors in that respect. Um, and then, you know, there's also uh, some of the other different types of visibility. Uh, speaking at conferences might be one if that's something that you are interested in doing. Uh, maybe as a developer, if you want to try to build you know, an audience, so you can maybe get into something like podcasting or writing books. Like self we were just joking earlier about how there's no money in publishing, but doing a self-published ebook, there is money in, since you go ahead and get to keep all the, all the rewards for that. And you know, don't let anyone ever shame you into uh, not making money off things you create. You know, you should you should always totally feel feel like if someone thinks what you have to say or what you can code is valuable and they're willing to give you money for it, you know, as long as you're not running afoul of any, you know, any laws or any ethical stuff, you should feel totally, totally free to say, yes, thank you. I will do that. It is an interesting one. I have I have been approached many times about sponsorship on the podcast and I've turned it down pretty much every time. And only recently I decided I was going to put up an Amazon referral link and a buy me a coffee thing. Mm -hmm. And I put those up discreetly on the websites, but I don't, they, the podcast website doesn't get a lot of traffic. The podcast gets a load of downloads, but it's through RSS feeds. <laughs> <laughs> the blog site does get a lot of traffic, but very few people bother clicking on it. And, you know, it's kind of, I do this because I enjoy it, but there is a cost. There's web servers there's uh domain names uh there's podcast hosting there's software and tools and there's time and i i i was a little bit surprised at the the lack of engagement uh given the numbers i can see i can see exactly the numbers per day and it follows the monday to friday cycle like you'd expect because there's people at work and i can see the numbers per day and then i can see the number of people that bother clicking on it and I also know that, you know, a high percentage of developers like us have ad blockers. So I wouldn't get the, the, the statistics about those. And I was quite surprised at how few people contribute or even click. 
And that leads us right back into the sustainability conversation. Mm. Is that is exactly what a maintainer of a popular JavaScript or .NET library goes through. They can see the big NuGet NPM downloads, but you know if they go ahead and try to use something like GitHub sponsorships, they might get maybe what a couple hundred bucks a month for in exchange for let's say if they're a really high end developer, and in the United States you might get paid. You know, let's let's go ahead and call it. In most metro areas, if you're, let's say, a .NET developer with at least 10 years of experience, I'd expect that developer to earn somewhere between, let's say, 125 and 165000 you know, depending yeah, on, on geography. wouldn't seem unreasonable in Boston, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the, the dollar per hour cost for your labor, if you're spending, let's say, five hours a week working on an open source project and uh, you, you cost, let's say, $150,000 a year, um, I think your hourly rate is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 75, yeah. 75 or $80 an hour. Yeah, that's on the idea of the 2,000-hour, 50-week, uh, no vacation, two, two weeks vacation idea. But yeah, it's not an unreasonable number to do quick math on. Yep. Well, then, well, here's the thing. It's like the number of GitHub followers you can get, even if you're a very prolific developer, GitHub sponsors, excuse me, um, and the amount of money people are willing to donate for that sort of stuff is just a, a pittance of what your time is actually worth. And so really the, well, the question of sustainability comes down to is how do we align the incentives of your consumers with your producers? So the consumers get something they need, but they give something back to the producer that the producer needs, right? So in your case, Brian, with the podcast, maybe you don't need – advertising dollars. This is it's not something that's been important to you. But what you do like is the fact the, the the notion of being able to engage people and being able to have an impact with the with all of your all of your listeners and cultivating an audience. And so by seeing those big download numbers and getting that sort of uh you know, I guess gratification back, it's like, oh wow, people really like this episode as we're getting re-listened to and you can see that maybe that's enough for you, right? For another developer where they say, you know what, I'm going to make this podcast um, something I'm going to spend at least 10 hours a week doing. And we're going to go ahead and get a really heavy duty, let's say, a studio set up. We're going to line up a ton of guests. We're going to try to crank out at least two shows a week. We're going to edit it. That person's going to burn out real fast if they don't get either some money back in return for their time or something else that they value. So money is not necessarily the, the sort of answer to all the sustainability questions. A lot of the most um, – in fact, that's one of the things I kind of get into when I talk about the business models behind, behind how to make open source sustainable. Um, a lot of the really big open source projects don't make a dime off of any of their users, Kubernetes being a great example. Google open source Kubernetes because that was a system that they – well, it was kind of modeled off a system they used for managing a lot of their own services inside their company. But what Kubernetes has really given Google is massive thought leadership over how applications should be lifted and shifted to the cloud. And of course, as it so happens, Google has a cloud and they have a first class offering for managed Kubernetes. And so they do get some somewhat indirectly, they do get some financial reward from having a, a managed service version of Kubernetes. But Google also has a bunch of other open source projects, like since you're working in if you're working in Java, you may have heard of Juice with a G, a uh, big Google framework for doing all sorts of different stuff. 
Google doesn't make a dime off that, but it does put them in touch with lots of Java developers who might want to come work for them. And so that's really where the idea of sort of the incentives being aligned need to really matter. Needs, needs Alignment of the incentives is kind of what's really at the heart of making something sustainable. So in the case of Akka.net, um, you know, I'm a business owner. I have employees. And all of us need to be able to put bread on the table and pay our rent and <laughs> have health insurance and all of the, you know, sort of different um, – different various uh, you know, creature comforts and wants and desires. And so what I need from my open source projects in order to make them sustainable is I need to see that when I invest time and effort into triaging bugs, that as a result of that, I get back from usually the largest users of the software, meaning the biggest companies with the biggest ability to pay. I get training engagements. I get people who buy support plans from us. I get people who buy licenses to our APM suite. And, you know, it's only a small percentage of our open source users who actually buy stuff from us. But because when they do buy, they're making a pretty big investment to using this technology inside core parts of their business typically. Um, it, cre it creates the sort of feedback cycle that allows me to say, okay, wow, if I go and solve all these other problems that these users are having with the open source – I might go ahead and get even more business and I might be able to address an even bigger audience. And so that's sort of where the, the incentives are actually aligned between the consumers and the producers at this point. There's a lot of, uh, let's say, small consumers of the open source. When I say small, I mean like hobbyists or startups, small business. We're not, we're not talking about Bank of America, right? Um, these companies can go ahead and essentially – try software that's been funded as a result of the you know, big banks and healthcare companies and transportation networks and, uh, you know, let's say um, uh, big IoT and energy producer firms who do pay for our services. So when it comes to sustainability, a sustainable open source project is ultimately one that supports a business and it can support it directly in terms of, you know, pecuniary sort of rewards. Or can support it indirectly through things like giving a business access to developers they want to hire, uh, giving a business a certain degree of visibility and thought leadership inside the ecosystem, and that sort of thing. So you got to kind of, as a as a maintainer, you have to come up with a way to kind of create that outcome, though. Hoping for donations on you know GitHub sponsors or open collective is just a fool's errand. It can't scale for starters. But on top of that. <clears throat> Uh, businesses can't pay really for donations. There's this whole other sort of procurement side of the equation when it comes to getting the sort of big companies that should pay for open source because they depend on them and because an open source project failing hurts them so badly. Those companies need to be able to justify the types of things they spend money on. And it's a lot easier for them to justify hiring the founder of one of these open source projects to train their team on something than it is for them to justify donating, you know, let's say a thousand bucks a month to, to supporting it. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, but most companies haven't that ability, as you say. Uh, there was a company I worked for some years back and we were using a particular open source library. We found a bug. It was a genuine bug. Uh, I reported it to them, the maintainers, and they said, yep, uh, our fault. I asked them when did they think they could fix it? And the response was, um, hmm, option one, you go fix it yourself and make a pull request. I wasn't going to, it was too specialized. 
Uh, option two, you wait until we get around to it. Or option three, you pay us some money and we'll prioritize it. And I thought, mm -hmm. brilliant, option three, I'll go talk to my boss. And the response was, no effing way are we paying for free software. And, you know, 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks, it wouldn't have mattered. You know, a, a development team that the size I was on, um, let's say 20 developers, whatever that is per day, a lot of dollars. So, you know, even if it means that we're unproductive uh, because we were unproductive for a number of hours because of this, we lost so much money and time that a couple of thousand dollars wouldn't have mattered. But the attitude was no way are we paying for free software. I know some, you know, some organizations are sorry, some uh, some projects, they have the free side and the paid for side. I think Serilog and Seek would be an example of that. Yep. Um, where you don't necessarily have to pay. You don't, if, you, if I think it's for small single users or small groups, you don't have to pay, but if you're bigger, you do. So th there, there are things like that, but for the majority of open source projects, going back to my point, a lot of the best ones are the simplest ones and you don't need that support. Yep, that's true. What, what about the aggression side of things? Um, I've seen discussions on GitHub and other places that people can get quite um, upset with maintainers of free software. And, and one, one, my, one small thing, I occasionally get a nasty comment on my blog about something <laughs> that someone disagrees with. And my general response is, it's free. If it's not right, it's not right. If you don't like it, you don't like it. But you don't, you know, sending abuse is really not productive. No, <clears throat> no, it's not. Well, uh, my take on the... Um abuse side of things. I haven't seen very much of it, you know, in, in, in six years on this project. We, we had some, we had more of it probably earlier on when we were in the middle of debating some pretty big sort of design and architectural questions, but for the most part, it doesn't really come up a lot often. Um, that might be a function of sort of who we cater to. Uh, but, you know, I, I definitely have seen it happen. Uh, I think part of it is people do develop this entitlement mentality, which is, because this thing is free, it belongs to me. And if this free thing doesn't work, well, you need to make it work. And uh, it's kind of like um, if you buy a product and it doesn't work as advertised, you get upset and you want them to make it right, return it, refund it. It's, well, it's the same kind of like psychology at work. But you haven't given the, the producer any incentive to do it other than not getting yelled at. And if that happens to them enough times, they'll go ahead and say, you know what, like stuff it, man. You can go ahead and um, you can go ahead and pay us to, to go and work on it. And by the way, I, I do that too. When someone comes to me with an urgent bug or more often than not, they'll go ahead and say, hey, we've got this issue with our application and we're not sure if we're doing something right. Can you take a look at it? I go ahead and send them a pricing sheet when I do it saying like, you know, because I've got a million things I can do in any given day and so do my engineers. And if you want us to reprioritize our schedule, there's got to be – there's got to be an alignment of incentives there, and you should never feel guilty about doing that. And I think that's probably one of the things that stops a lot of these projects from being sustainable is these uh, open source sort of maintainers don't want to be dirty capitalists. You know, <laughs> they, they, uh, they feel like somehow it runs afoul of the community spirit, whereas the truth is uh, you're really actually kind of doing your users a favor by charging for things because you're giving them an opportunity to create that feedback loop. Now, if you have a library that's super simple, since you brought this up, where it doesn't, it, it's, it's well documented, it doesn't really need a lot of 
doesn't really need a lot of support uh, because let's say what it does is pretty specific. Uh, good example, my my uh, my employee who made that phone number validator, right? There's probably not a whole lot you can get wrong with the phone number validation component out there, right? Well, in that case, um, the upside of that is a project like that's probably not going to be that expensive to maintain either, right? You know, how many evolutions are there going to be in phone number validation every couple of months? You know, people aren't going to find concurrency bugs and that sort of thing in a phone number validation script. Um, so in that, in that instance, you're probably, you're, you know, you probably have a project that gets you some attention and you should leverage it that way. We should use it to go ahead and give yourself some exposure, get access to better job opportunities and, and kind of use the open source project that way. That way you're still incentivized to keep working on it, to keep, keep up good work. But you're also getting something out of it too, which is you're getting a, a more visibility and a bigger profile, access to clients if you want to get into consulting and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, that would be that'd be a big one. Quite a lot of what we've talked about tonight has been a little bit negative, but I think you th you think there's hope. Can oh, I'm tell us, man. I, I couldn't be an entrepreneur if I wasn't an optimist. Um, no, mo mo so most of what we've talked about tonight is really it's economics. It's uh, as as all good sort of economists will tell you, incentives matter, and so developers are figuring this out now, and so are the companies who consume open source. And so there's a lot of positive movement happening towards making the open source ecosystem. And I say that in kind of the the, the all encompassing meaning of the word. I'm, I'm not just talking about .NET. I mean JavaScript, Java, Rust, you name it. The open source sort of industry is figuring out how to make itself profitable. I mean, Red Hat just got acquired by IBM for what $2.4 billion last year. And they're, you know, they were one of the biggest open source companies in the world. The, the thing that developers are figuring out is that ultimately you need to go and create these positive feedback loops. And venture capital has figured that out now. They actually created um, this thing called the Open Core Summit last year, which was a, a big conference chock full of hundreds of different businesses, all basically open source companies where their products are open source. And what they're what they're discovering is basically all the right ways to go ahead and make effective business models around that. We just saw Elastic uh, have a very successful IPO last year. Another company that's totally built around this open core model for open source. Um, so those are some examples at the very top of the ecosystem where you have, let's say, companies like Elastic and Datastax and Confluent. These are all big sort of open source software companies. Datastax. It supports Cassandra, Confluent supports Kafka, Elastic supports Elasticsearch, et cetera. So those are all big infrastructure projects that are all figuring out how to make money uh, using kind of this open core type model. Well, there's lots of other models around open source that are still being discovered. You know, my, my business is largely services based. Uh, there's other businesses that are doing more types of work with things like dual licensing. So like in the .NET ecosystem, RavenDB and N Service Bus are both good examples of that. And what this is going to create, if people can go ahead and sort of erect these sustainable open source business models, is there's going to be a much greater sort of diversity in terms of the types of suppliers you can go and get technologies from. And by virtue of the fact that they have their incentives aligned with the customers, it's going to go ahead and guarantee that these projects are sustainable. You know, N Service Bus has been around for what, eight or nine years? RavenDB, maybe about seven. 
these those are pretty old projects, even by the standards of let's say the Java ecosystem. So, and those and the reason why those projects are still around and are so heavily maintained is because there's a healthy business sitting behind it. So, not every open source project needs to be a business, and not every open source project can be a business. But every project can be made sustainable. But that's one of the things that the maintainer has to want to do is they have to want to make it maintainable or excuse me, sustainable for them. And they do that by just aligning the incentives and developers are figuring this out and it's going to ultimately result in an ecosystem for open source that is bigger, more diverse, offers more choices and also is going to raise the level of quality control across the board. And so I think we're in for some really exciting times as both producers and consumers of open source. There's going to be a lot more ideas that are going to be realized, a lot more different ways of doing things. It's not all just going to come from Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook. It's going to come from a lot of different corners all over the earth that you may not have expected it from. So I have, even though you know a lot, the picture I painted was a little grim over the course of this episode, I'm nothing but optimistic. And believe me, if I thought the open source software business was bad, I'd be finding a way out of it right now rather than doubling down on it, which is what I'm doing at the moment. Aaron, any final notes before we wrap up for the evening? Um, if you're a .NET developer and you're listening and you want to try Aka.NET, you know, learn how to do some fun uh, concurrent distributed programming, uh, we have a free boot camp that you can get, go to at uh, learnaka.net. And uh, I'll go ahead and send Brian the URL so you can include that in the show sure. notes. Uh, but I, I definitely encourage you to do that. And if you want to read more of my blog posts, uh, you can find me at uh, aaronstandard.com. And the two blog posts we'll be talking about are dated January 30th, 2020 and January 23rd, 2020. That's right. Well, Aaron Stannard, thank you very much for your time this evening. You're welcome. And uh, thank you, Brian, for having me on. And thanks to all of your listeners for tuning in. Really appreciate it. If you like this episode, you might also like episode 118 with Cliff Ages, where he uses open source software to build a bionic hand. Or episode 71, with Dylan Reisenberger on the Poly Project, or episode 63 with Jimmy Bogart on Automapper, two very popular open source projects. opening music was returned by Nisi 23 from the album 11 and 12 and the closing music was Sleepless 
by Unheard Music Concepts from the album The Lasso of Time. 